Hey, this is Lee. I really hope you've been enjoying the Business of Marketing podcast. It's from marketers and for marketers, and my intention is to bring you value, experiences, and insights that you can use. Also, if your company would like to have their own podcast, I would love to help. The team at Content Monster specializes in B2B podcasts. So if we can help, contact me at contentmonster.com. That's contentmonster.com. Enjoy the podcast. You're listening to the Business of Marketing podcast where we have conversations with some of the most influential and thought-provoking minds in marketing, sales, and business. And here's your host, A. Lee Judge. Welcome to the Business of Marketing. I'm A. Lee Judge. Public relations, influence marketing, and write-out endorsements. Sometimes it can be hard to tell them apart. This is in part because of the shifts in who we trust how brands communicate to their consumers, as well as the channels in which marketing content is distributed. In this episode, we have someone that can help us learn a bit about influence marketing versus influencer marketing and give some insight to how that relates to traditional PR. Today, my guest is a leading digital strategist, author, speaker, and thinker in the digital and social media marketing industry. As an award-winning strategist, he has been noted as a top influencer in the social strategy, social technology and marketing space by publications such as Forbes, Entrepreneur, and Advertising Age. He's worked on marketing strategies for brands like GE, General Motors, AT&T, Humana, and many others. And his recent book is quickly becoming a must-have for marketers learning who want to learn about influence. And we will surely get into that book later on in this episode. But for right now, I'm honored to introduce and welcome to the podcast, Jason Falls. Hey, Jason. Thank you so much for having me, Lee. It's great to be here, man. Man, looking forward to diving into some questions with you. Um, and so is there anything I, I missed here? I know that my my introduction did not give you justice. Uh, there's, there's, I make sure I have really highly credentials guests, credential guests on the podcast. And you're one of those is too much to mention everything, but what did I miss there? I, I think you covered it pretty well. I think only my mother would go into more depth. So I think you're in good shape. <laughs> well, good, good. Let's just get into the conversation then. Um, so within marketing, we often hear two terms, influence marketing and influencer marketing. So Jason, what is the difference between influencer marketing and influence marketing? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked because that's, uh, you know, sort of really what I think separates really successful strategic campaigns in the influence space uh, versus those that are very sort of tactically based. So okay. my definition of influencer marketing is basically kind of what people expect uh, out of an influencer marketing campaign. It's like, let's go and pay someone on Instagram or YouTube. Uh, somebody who has a large social media following to uh, say something about our product, write about our product, you know, hold their, the product up while they talk about it. Um, and it's kind of a pay for placement, you know, very focused on the, the channel, the influencer mm -hmm. and how they will, you know, and how you, you will build a relationship with them to, to, to endorse what you're doing. Um, kind of like product placement, kind of like celebrity endorsement. Mm -hmm. Influence marketing, when you take the R out of that phrase and you talk about influence rather than influencer, you're talking about your goal. You're talking about the action that you're trying to achieve here. You're talking about your strategy. What are you trying to do? You're trying to influence. You're trying to influence an audience to take action. Mm 
And when you take it away from the noun, the influencer, it actually opens up your, your perspective quite a bit and your horizons of what you can use to accomplish that goal. Because if you think about it, an influencer is a word that sort of kind of intimates or, or assumes that you mean someone who has a social media following. But if you're trying to influence an audience, it might be that you're using the president of the local PTA to influence local parents to say or do something or think something or buy something. It might be that you're using a political lobbyist to influence legislators to vote a certain way about a given issue. It now is no longer limited to social media channels or people with large followings online. It's actually open up to anyone because anyone ha can have influence. I've been influenced by people who are standing in, the in line in the grocery store in front of me having a conversation about maybe a product, maybe an event, you know, maybe, you know, some TV show. And I hear what they're saying and then I go home and I look it up and I validate what, what that, that recommendation was or I get curious about it and look into it. And so these two absolute strangers just influenced me. I don't know how many followers they have on Instagram. It doesn't matter because hmm. that, that was an opportunity to influence someone. It didn't have anything to do with influencers. So I really just think if you take that R away, you're focusing on the action, you're focusing on the verb, you're not focusing on this you know, little sliver of what's possible there with that channel. So it allows for a much bigger conversation because it, it even includes word of mouth, I guess, in that case. It includes everything. I mean, if you if you really think about it, if you want to be semantically correct about it, it actually, you know, influencing is what we in the marketing space do with everything. Advertising is influence marketing. Public relations is influence marketing. Right. Um, and so uh, I don't think of it in, in terms of that broad uh, of, a, of a, a, a perspective just because, you know, we're trying to delineate here amongst some you know, different channels and different tactics and strategies that you might use in a digital marketing world. But it definitely at least unleashes the handcuffs of it's got to be someone with a lot of followers on social media. Okay. So as a marketer looking to strategically add that to, to, to my, my daily operations, mm -hmm. I suppose I would find someone who ha has influence. They don't have to have the following, but there's someone who I think that when I tie them to or even get them alongside my product or service mm -hmm. will provide influence. Could be just because of their credibility not so much audience, but just to say, look, this unknown professor, scientist, you know, businessman, mm -hmm. he has credibility. He's not very well known, but he has credibility. So by aligning with that person, I guess right. that can provide influence. It, it's true. And if you think about it, we did, uh, you know, something not too long ago uh, at Cornette, the agency where I work in Lexington, Kentucky, with the University of Kentucky healthcare team. And kind of a long story short, we were trying to motivate people to go watch a video on Facebook and interact with it. And so we did the influencer marketing. We found people with large audiences that had an impact on Lexington, Kentucky in the general area um, who had some relevance, you know, with the, the healthcare audience and got them to, you know, direct their audiences to go watch this video. But we also reached out and partnered with people who were influential people, not just influencers. So mm -hmm. like, um, PG Peoples is the president of the Urban League in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. He has an enormous footprint of influence on the, the area. Not necessarily a big Facebooker, not necessarily a big Instagrammer, but we knew that the people who do connect with him or watch what he's doing on social channels, if they see him go and comment on this video on UK Healthcare's uh, Facebook page, 
and the other people who aren't necessarily following him but know who he is because he's important in the community, they see him interacting with the content. All of a sudden, it raises the credibility of the content. And now, all of a sudden, if you've got the CEO of the Urban League, if you've got the music director at the local Presbyterian church who's also very involved in the local art scene, if you've got a very popular pediatric dentist in town who touches a lot of families, a lot of parents, a lot of people who make healthcare decisions, if they're interacting with the content as influential people, as well as those online influencers, now all of a sudden you've got this mix of influence happening that's much more impactful than if you limited yourself to let's just find people who have a lot of following online. I think that, that makes it much clearer, I think, when you're talking to a business audience, because mm-hmm. instead of taking a celebrity to an audience of fans who the celebrity already has their fans, you're bringing your audience to the credibility, mm-hmm. right? You're not bringing them to a celebrity or to, to their to an audience, to a celebrity's audience. You're bringing the topic, the content you have, and you're bringing it to a credible source to say, look, this credible person believes in this. Exactly. It's it's kind of that, you know, third party endorsement, you know, in a roundabout way. You're looking for people who, um, you know, the audience you're trying to reach respects, you know, that that's people who are influenced by them. So, you know, in addition to Mr. Peebles, we got the mayor, we got, you know, a lot of people that were influential people in town mm-hmm. to be involved in this content in addition to the online influencers. And that really brought a much broader context to it and, you know, made the the ultimate, you know, goal of the operation much more successful than I think it would have been otherwise. Well, we speak about bringing audiences and bringing content to audiences. And that to me is, is basically that, that transportation is, is media. And Mm -hmm. I'm a big advocate of every company being a media company, you Mm -hmm. know, no matter what their product or services, they need to be a media company. So, you know, when you're, when you're consulting, how would you communicate to a company to create their own media to support their influence? Well, I mean, I think it's, it goes without saying, and, and you've probably heard this over and over again if you've been you know, reading or thinking or watching anything about digital marketing over the last 10 or 15 years, you know, content is king. And if you are, as a company, as a brand online, not creating recurring content, either on your website or on your social channels or both, um, if you're not producing YouTube videos, if you're not um, you know, maybe having articles or blog posts on your site, If you're not engaging people on, depending upon where your audience is, on social networks like LinkedIn or like Facebook or Instagram or even TikTok, if you're not creating that content, you're not a part of the conversation. And if you're not a part of the conversation, but your competitors are, well, then you Mm -hmm. lose. And so um, becoming a media company um, is not just a nice to have these days. It's an an imperative. It's a must have. Social media created an opportunity for anybody to become a publisher, and that's any individual human being, but it's also any company or corporation. Your website using blog mechanisms, and and don't be afraid of the word blog. It's just a descriptor of of a content management system that you can manage easily. That's all it means. Mm -hmm. Um, But having some way to publish content easily on your website and then to distribute that content through social networks and other uh, easy means of sharing content through social media is it, it turns an individual person or it turns your company into its own newspaper. It turns you into your own television station if you're recording videos and uploading them to 
YouTube or Vimeo or putting them on your website. It turns you into your own radio station if you're doing podcasts and recording, you know, some sort of episodic, you know, uh, conversation and putting that out there for people. And with live streaming now, it can turn you into your own live television station. And with multi-streaming, it can turn you into your own television network. Network. So um, we have a client. Uh, I work with Buffalo Trace Bourbon, the Sazerac family of bourbons that come out of the Buffalo Trace Distillery. Every Wednesday at two o'clock, um, the we have what's called Whiskey Wednesdays, which is a live stream from the distillery. And it might be that they're touring, um, you know, the still house or a warehouse or looking at the fermenting tanks, or they might be doing a tasting of different, you know, brands of bourbon that they they create there. Or it might be, you know, a Q and A with some of the experts uh, of how bourbon is made. But every week there's something new. Well, that, um, you know, basically Buffalo Trace Distillery and, and the Sazerac Company are producing a weekly television show that airs live, but it airs live on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube, on multiple Facebook channels. So it's live in a bunch of different places. So essentially, Buffalo Trace Distillery, which is a single location that manufa- it's a tourist destination, but it also manufactures these products. But it's not any more complex than a single location mom and pop shop. They can actually do a live stream video show every week and broadcast it to multiple places in syndication form. Uh-huh. Um, and so that, you know, it, it, it's, it's amazing to think that over the course of a year, the Buffalo Trace Distillery gets somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 to 800,000 visitors pre-COVID, right? Uh-huh. Um, physical people coming to the place. Last year from May 2020, when we started Whiskey Wednesdays, to December 2020, so not even a full year, 4.8 million people watched Whiskey Wednesday. Wow. So this is a single location business, not very big in the grand scheme of things, Uh that created a a live television network that reached 4.8 million people over the course of a year. They won't see that many people in five, six years coming to the, the, the distillery in person. Right. So it's an incredibly powerful thing for you to be your own media company because it allows you to create content. As long as you're creating content that's engaging and useful for your audience, it allows you to create content that puts you in front of them more frequently than you would be otherwise. Now, in terms of b- becoming your own media company, you know, you mentioned earlier about all the different uh, previous channels in the past, you know, newspaper, v- uh, television, radio. You know, before there was a, a middleman between a company. And getting to those places, you had to go through public relations. You had to have someone to represent you, to get you and to shop you, to pitch you to these media outlets. And as we just discussed, because of social, that that barrier is gone. You can go straight to the outlet, straight to the consumer themselves. Now, I know you come from the world of PR. So (laughs) and for me personally, I've lost enthusiasm for traditional PR, mainly because the voice of the customer is often louder than any PR company themselves can create. So in an area, in, a, in an era of influence marketing, where does traditional PR even stand? You know, it's traditional PR has just changed. It's, it hasn't gone away. It's just now different. So the traditional media outlets are still influencers. They're still influential, right? Um, you know, the most popular um, you know, a uh, website destination in your, whatever town you uh, are in is probably still the website of the local daily newspaper or one or more of the local, you know, television stations, or even, you know, some radio stations in terms of 
where people get their news, where people get their information. Um, you, you see that the anchors on the television stations have their own channels now on Twitter and whatnot. And so they're creating their own individual influence and they're, but they're all still part of that same sort of media, um, you know, outlet, same, same media uh, environment. Uh, and so, but those media uh, uh, agencies, those, um, those businesses, those, those channels, those networks, those stations, those uh, publications are still very, very influential. The difference in PR now is, is you've got that round of, of, of traditional media that's, that are influencers. And now you've got a layer underneath or maybe even above them, depending upon the size of the audience, of non-trained, random, you know, consumers who have built influence in a given topic or a given uh, subject matter on their own. And so now when you're looking at, okay, if I need to reach people in, um, let's say Louisville, Kentucky, which is where I live. And so I know Louisville a little bit better than most cities. If I want to reach people with a message in Louisville, Kentucky, yeah, the Courier Journal is the local daily newspaper. You know, the, the four main you know TV stations are going to be important to me. Um, but I'm also going to reach out to, you know, some of the, um, you know, alternative publications. I'm going to reach out to local bloggers. Uh, I'm going to reach out to, I'm, I'm trying to remember some names of them off the top of my head here, and I'm not doing a really good job of it. But um, there, there are influencers about Louisville. The, probably the best one, depending upon the topic, is there's a blog called Louisville Family Fun, which is basically a ratings and review site, uh, articles about where you can take your family to have fun uh, for the weekend or, you know, this week, you know, it's about events. It's about cool kid ideas and activities. Well, if I'm a, a product or a service that's trying to reach parents or trying to reach kids, trying to get people to come and buy my product or see what I'm doing, and I'm doing it in and around Louisville, Louisville family fun is not, you know, number 12 on my list. They're probably one or two because they have a highly concentrated audience of the most relevant consumers that I'm trying to reach. So you just have to think of PR a little differently and say, hey, the opportunities are there for a lot more than just traditional media to help us get the word out. Um, the biggest change, though, the biggest difference for PR professionals is understanding that that new layer of influencer rather than traditional media, they don't understand what PR is. They don't know that they're, that PR people can be helpful or useful to them. And they are also both the, 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 the separation of church and state in traditional publishing, where you've got editorial over here and advertising over here. That separation doesn't exist with an influencer because they have to make money and, and be the adver advertising department in order to be able to sustain a living being the editorial department. So everything's blended. And so that sort of earned and paid has to come together in some form or fashion for PR people to be successful in communicating a message through that channel and make sure that those folks are able to sustain what they're doing. So what does that say for the person consuming the content when, you know, you have this gray area between, as you said, the, the paid and the influencer and the, you know, the, the credible local newspaper that has been vetted out by someone. And there is still some, some garden, some wall garden between the, the creator and the outlet versus the influencer, which there may not be any barrier. It may just be straight to consumer. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's, uh, you know, sort of the iceberg of the tip of a, a very, very large problem that we have with social media today is, where, who do we trust? What, what yeah. sources are credible? Where are people getting their information? 
Are they getting it from trusted sources or are they getting it from sources that are not necessarily reliable and trustworthy in terms of the truth? And I think that's why you've seen, obviously, the political and social uh, conversations in social media have gotten so polarizing and skewed. And there are people who are arguing against, you know, provable scientific fact uh, because they're relying on sources that, you know, bringing those those scientific facts into question and whatnot. I think that's interesting. I just had recently maybe think about uh, a relative who is totally shut off from social, totally shut off from, they're in a very rural area. Mm-hmm. They don't seek out the best media, the best sources of information. I'll put it that yeah. way. <laughs> and, but yet they're, they're dipping their toe into Facebook. And so <laughs> they're, they're the family member who, whenever they post something or send something through a messenger, you know, to not click on it <laughs> or yep. not believe it because they don't, you know, they don't know what they're doing. Yep. The funny thing is I saw a post recently that said, you know, read this. It's true. It was on the news. Hmm. And I turned my wife and said, you know what? That used to mean something. Yeah, it did. You know, when we were kids, if it was on the news, it meant something. Mm-hmm. Now it doesn't mean anything because what, first of all, was it really on the news? Did someone just get a nice logo and put it on, you know, a lower third and call it the news? That was the first thing. Was it really on the news? And then what is your definition of the news? That's (laughs) very true. And you bring up a good point because, and you have to remember that as social media emerged and there were more voices vying for the attention of consumers, the only defense mechanism that traditional media had was to become more controversial, more you know, rubbernecking headlines to make everybody stop and pay attention. So that polarized even the traditional media, you know, even more. Mm -hmm. So in order to capture the attention away from uncredible, not incredible, but uncredible sources, the traditional media has had to take paths that they probably wouldn't have taken 20 years ago, writing headlines and and producing stories and things of that nature. They've had to become incredible to outweigh the uncredible. You're you're absolutely (laughs) right. And, and again, that's, that's a, we're starting down a a rabbit hole here of a huge problem that, that we face as a society um, and not just as marketers, but, you know, in society as a whole. And I think you're, you're going to start to see the pendulum will swing back here in the next few years. I really believe that, um, you know, truth and accuracy is going to make a comeback. How quickly, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, and it might, you know, it might take everything from government regulation to, you know, new social networks or media outlets coming out that offer up a better experience. So it'll take a generation, I think. The, it'll take the a future generation. is, is going to be interesting to see for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, have, I have young kids and it surprises me how well they're tuned in to watch probably fake. Um, on the one hand, you might say they don't believe anything, but on the other hand, you may say they are becoming more critical thinkers than most adults are right now because they start with, it's probably not true. And then they discover they, they dig in to see if it's true as opposed to assuming it's true and waiting for someone to prove it opposite. Right. Yeah. So let's get back to some things I think that um, our marketers can use. Um, right. And I, I want to throw a couple scenarios at you, uh, especially when it comes to influencer or influencer marketing. There seems to be two vastly different worlds between B2B influence marketing and B2C influencer marketing, or maybe B2C influence marketing. So let's talk about each one separately. I'm going to give you a scenario and 
give me how you how you would approach it, right? Okay. So let's start with a, a B2B. Let's say my company sells construction tools. Yep. It's not it's not a sexy product that you see during <laughs> halftime commercial or on Instagram. Nope. It's you know, it's jackhammers and, and laser scanners and things. So tell me where would you start and some things to, to consider if you're tasked with utilizing influence marketing for this company. So construction tools are typically, you know, and I'm going to research the audience who buys these tools and why. And um, my high level guess, because I don't work in that space, but my high level guess is construction tools are probably purchased by procurement officers for construction companies, right? You're probably not talking about the guy operating the jackhammer or the gal operating the, the jackhammer. You're probably talking about you know, a CFO, a corporate executive who is making, you know, mass purchases of equipment and whatnot, maybe a production supervisor or something like that. So what I've got to do is I've got to sit myself down and ask myself, if I'm that person, where do I get my information? Where do I get my news? Where do I learn about new products? Um, and more than likely in a B2B situation, because this is, again, a business buyer, um, that person is going to go to trade shows and conferences. They're going to look at trade magazines. They might read trade blogs. They might also participate on forums and message boards within that particular industry. Um, there might be some influential people that they listen to and follow in that industry, maybe on LinkedIn, maybe on Facebook, maybe even on Twitter, depending on the industry and, and who are the voices there. But what I've got to do is once I figure out where they get their news and information, then I have to ask myself, okay, who are the voices on those channels? Is it the beat writer for uh, the B2B trade pub uh, about construction equipment? Um, is it a uh, person who uh, runs a LinkedIn group for uh, CFOs of construction companies? Uh, or is it an, an, an influential noisy voice within that Facebook group or LinkedIn group? about uh, that. So what I've got to do is I've got to start to analyze where people are getting information and then understand who's supplying that information. It might be that your uh, influencers are executives within the industry. It might be that they are trade publication journalists and media members within the industry. It might be that there is, you know, somebody out there who has decided to start a construction tool uh, review channel on YouTube. Um, so you've got to start looking from a couple of different angles, the top down, where do they get their information? Who supplies that information? And are those people folks that I can connect with? And from the bottom up, who's talking about construction tools on YouTube? Who's talking about them on Twitter? Who's talking about them on Instagram? If there, there are, once you start to do that, you start to see some commonalities that'll pop out. This person over here who has this YouTube channel is showing up and posting over here in this forum or message board, and they're quoted in this article on this trade publication website. That is a person that I need to get to know, right? So you're tying so, that back into what you said earlier about finding that credibility yep. and, and going from that person or from there. Absolutely. And and there's there's some techniques that you can use. That are, they're pretty advanced techniques, but I mean, the, the technology's out there um, and it doesn't even really have to be that expensive. Sometimes it's as, 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 as simple as going to Twitter and searching for people talking about the conversation and then looking to see who these people are, who's talking about construction tools, who are using the industry hashtags and go look at their profiles. If that person's got five or 6,000 followers within that sort of niche kind of industry, that's probably an influential voice in that uh, industry. So let's connect with them. Let's follow them. Let's have conversations with them. Let's 
um, you know, see if they're interested in collaborating with our team so that we can get, you know, tools in front of them that they can look at, that they can review, that they can see, et cetera. So it doesn't have to be real complicated, although it certainly can be, but sometimes it's just who's talking about this stuff already. That's who we really need to connect with. Okay. So here's another curveball for you. All right. Uh, going to go B to C this time. Okay. Uh, let's say you have a new light bulb that magically sanitizes your house. <laughs> Still not a sexy product, but it's sold directly to the consumer. Okay. So where do you start there with influence marketing? Well, again, um, I'm trying to think who, who's ultimately going to buy this. So if it sanitizes my house, this is going to be moms, right? Moms make those kinds of decisions on cleaning products, on taking care of the home, you know, it's the CMO of the household, if you will, um, or the CEO of the household, rather. So it's going to be moms, I would think. Um, or it's going to be people who are interested in new technology, right? Smart products, things like that. So now I've got a segment. I've got my main core consumer audience. This is going to be moms who are the CEO of the household. And then I've got this people who are interested in tech and gadgets and new things, right? So I've got a sub, a sub uh, audience there too. So that's, that's who's going to be buying this. Well, where do they get, where are they influenced? Where do they get their information? So moms are going to go to uh, certain websites. They're going to go to certain news channels. They're going to watch certain YouTubers. They're going to read certain blogs. And so I need to figure out, okay, moms who are interested in, um, having, you know, efficient homes, taking care of their families, their kids, um, having a clean environment. I could maybe even break off into a sub-segment of people who are minimalists or people who are germaphobes, right? There's a couple of different ways I could go there, but I need to figure out where these people are getting their information. And when I start to, again, connect those dots of, hey, this uh, mom blog over here is a popular resource for the types of folks that I'm trying to reach, and the, one of the writers for that mom blog is also big on Instagram and has a huge following there and also does YouTube videos and is quoted in articles in the New York Times. Now, all of a sudden, I've got somebody I can circle and say, that's someone I need to know. And you can just kind of reiterate or iterate that over and over again and, and get a list of 5, 10, 15 people to start with and start trying to build relationships with those folks. Interesting. Because coincidentally, this is I didn't think about this when I asked this question, but I just bought a bunch of lights. I bought a bunch of uh, LED lights that I had installed. So I was that gadget person you just mentioned who's yeah. interested in gadgets. I'm also a bit of a germaphobe. So if they would <laughs> clean the house too. <laughs> there you go. I'll so be if very happy. If, so if you're, if you're going out there and you're searching and you, and you might start with a Google search, but you might also, you know, be on Facebook or something and, and searching for people who are talking about, you know, you know, LED lighting or whatnot. If you get to a, a blog or a forum or a message board where someone says, hey, man, I just tried this new light from, you know, GE and it, it uh, you know, sanitizes your house. All you can do is turn it on. Now, all of a sudden, you're hooked. And whoever wrote that was your influencer. There you go. Interesting. <laughs> Thanks for that. For catching those curveballs here. <laughs> so I was looking at your, um, I listened to, to your podcast. What's, what's the name of your podcast, by the way? So I have two. The primary one is, is called Winfluence, which is also the name of my book. It's Winfluence, okay. the Influencer Marketing Podcast. But okay. I also do one for Cornette, my agency called Digging Deeper, which is more of a marketing creative strategy kind of podcast. So I do two. Okay. I think I was listening to the to the Winfluence one. And I heard you go on a rant about <laughs> the overuse of the term authenticity. Yes. And with full admission, I believe we both are guilty. We've both yeah. been people who've been training other marketers 
to use authenticity. I think, in fact, today I made a post about it. So I, I thought about it when I wrote it. It's like, see, here I go again. I'm not, not only doing it, but I'm encouraging <laughs> others to do it. Yeah. Um, so given that the term has been, you know, is beaten to death and we are still beating it to death and it's overused, do you think that companies have gotten the message or gotten the idea and moved the needle any closer towards being authentic? You know, I think in a very general sense, I would say yes. And the reason that I went on my rant about using the word authenticity was because I feel like it's kind of a given these days. Um, you know, if you are an, an, a with it brand and you understand consumers, I think you now understand that you can't hide behind a corporate logo. You can't uh, you can't enter the marketplace these days and not be transparent to a degree. Um, you know, you can't be disingenuous to your consumers because as companies have learned over and over again over the past decade or so, your consumers are going to call you out if you're not. So to be inauthentic mm. today is kind of, I mean, it's kind of a scarlet letter. You're like saying, hey, I don't get it. I'm not a brand worth uh, dealing with. So my problem with using authenticity as, you know, something that you need to be um, and I, my rant was really based on all these influencer marketing agencies who say, we build authentic connections with consumers and we're authentic and we're genuine and we're transparent and we're open and we're honest. And I'm like, well, duh, if you're not for <laughs> at, at any point in time in today's consumer marketplace, you're going to be outed and nobody's going to do business with you. So I feel like authenticity is almost a given these days. So I do think it has worked. Um, as a mantra that we have been promoting in the marketing space for a long time. However, I will say that there are a lot of companies out there, a lot of businesses, a lot of brands, a lot of marketers, and a lot of CEOs and executives who still don't get it. Um, you still have companies that are trying to keep secrets. You still have companies that are uh, latching on to social issues just because they think it will increase their market share or their stock value, not because they genuinely believe in supporting that issue. Um, you've got, um, you know, corporate decisions that are made and there's no transparency as to why those decisions are made and consumers are kept in the dark. That still happens. Now, in some situations, that's going to happen. Publicly traded companies have lots of rules and regulations on what they can tell their consumers and when. So I'm not saying that you have to be open kimono all the time, but there are companies out there that are still doing nefarious things and trying to hide it from their consumers. And eventually they're going to be found out. They're going to be outed and they're going to go out of business. Uh, or I think you said a key devastated. thing there. The key thing you said earlier was risk. And it made me realize the pendulum has shifted a bit because typically you would say the risk of being authentic if you had said this a year or two ago, mm -hmm. then companies would not want to, you know, they would be too afraid of legal, which they still are, of course. But the risk was the risk of actually being authentic, the risk of showing our true selves. That was the risk. But you mentioned earlier that at this point in time, there's a risk for not being authentic. Absolutely. Somebody will call you out. And now that we all have social media at our hands, we can directly within one tweet impact an, a company mm -hmm. and celebrities can bring a company down with one tweet about Coca-Cola. <laughs> you know, that could just bring damage. You said earlier, damage the stock off of one tweet or one, one being called out for mm -hmm. not being authentic. So I think it's important for companies to understand that the, the risk is on both sides. You can risk for not doing it. And maybe that outweighs some of your past concerns yeah. about risk for doing it. 
you're absolutely right. And, 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 you know, 2020 in a lot of ways, sort of the, uh, sort of social awareness that a lot of that kind of entered the corporate, you know, mindset, um, in a lot of ways for the first time, um, mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately it took us that long to get there. Um, but 2020 was a year, you know, with, you know, everything from COVID to George Floyd to Breonna Taylor. I mean, there's so many reasons that social issues became more than just personal human being issues. They became companies were getting involved. Companies were taking a stand. They were doing more than just going silent on, on certain days. They were actually getting involved and getting behind social movements. And it was, a, in, in my personal opinion, was a, a welcome, you know, needed thing to happen. Yeah. Um, I wish it would have happened a long time ago. But if you go back to the early days of social media, 2004, 2005, and think about the first big, you know, sort of mainstream news about social media were, were things like, um, you know, uh, Dell Hell, uh, people blogging about, you know, their their problems with Dell computers and this little blogger guy for Dell, Lionel Menchaca, kind of coming to the rescue and saying, well, I work at Dell, let me help you. Um, and uh, the Comcast cares uh, stuff with uh, um, with Frank Elias and that he started um, on Twitter and, and other channels of, of having people complaining about Comcast and Frank kind of coming to the rescue and saying, well, wait a minute, I'm a VP for communications here. I can help fix these problems. Right. Um, and so those were the first initial indications in the, 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 the tea leaves that we should have been reading at the time. Uh, as marketers to say, hey, consumers now have a mechanism to raise their hand and call BS on us. Yeah. And social media evolved over the course of the last 15 years or so to the point to where now that's commonplace. You know, if you yeah. don't have really good customer service, you're going to get called out on at least Twitter, if not other channels. Um, if your company executives are caught doing something stupid, people are going to talk about that at a high volume level in front of a lot of other people on social media. Now it's not just going to happen around a water cooler in an office somewhere. It's going to happen on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram for everybody to see. Yeah. So the world has changed and I think we've seen it gradually shift to the point of last year, it became companies were starting to notice and go, all right, we not only can't um, hide anymore, we have to proactively get involved in things because consumers mm -hmm. are shifting and all the statistics and surveys and data says that Gen Z, Gen Y, Gen Z, and uh, the out generation alpha, the younger consumers these days, are all about companies that stand for the things they stand for, right? So sustainability, these younger consumers are all into sustainable products. If you're not sustainable, you better figure out how to get there because eventually you're going to lose market share because you're not. I think kind of to sum that up, it's like, in the past, the risk, in fact, Andrew Davis, you know, Andrew Davis, a mm -hmm. great speaker marketer, said that risky marketing is good marketing. Mm -hmm. And I think before organizations would say, what if we, it's a risk if we say something. <laughs> Today, it's more like, it's a risk if you don't say something. That's true. <laughs> now, I will amend that by also saying there are some companies and some brands, um, and I have a couple of clients who reminded me of this who are like, look, we sell a product. We don't need to be or want to be involved in the social conversation. That's not for us. Mm -hmm. They run the risk of their consumers saying, why aren't you chiming in on this? We want to know what you think. And they're willing to sustain that risk because their stance is, we just sell a product, man. We're not all about politics. We're not all about social issues. We're about making this thing. And if you want to buy it, 
that's great. We make a great product. I think but that's all fair. that stuff that's happening over there is not our, it's not our purview. It's not our, we don't have a, a platform and we don't want a platform to chime in on that because it's not what we do. Yeah, and I think I mean, that's okay, until, but they have to assume that risk. It's a risk. Yeah. I think as a business owner myself, I think it's okay to separate the business from, you know, a, a political or a social event until you're called out. Yeah. And I think at that point, it's time to be uh, be authentic and just be transparent. I should say that. It's, that's it's a new okay, word to kill. It's okay to authentically be like, you know what? I don't know enough about the issue to make a make, take a stand. I, I'll do that's some homework. Too. You know, that's I'll learn more, too. but I don't know what to say here. Yeah. And I, I think the, the biggest risk is when you know your opinion is not popular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, when there's, the, that's when the risk comes up. Yeah. There's been some, some Kenneth Coles and some other brands out there that have stepped in it and stepped in it intentionally. No, and I'm going to make everybody mad, but I don't care. And well, <laughs> I'll make some take new that headlines. Risk. Perfect example <laughs> of someone who gets away with that is Chick-fil-A. You know, they're, they're, the family behind it is very conservative. And mm -hmm. has been very openly anti-LBGTQ. I forget the order all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and it, their market share hasn't suffered for it. There are people who adamantly will never buy them. And I absolutely respect that. But there are people mm -hmm. out there who are like, that's good chicken. I'm going to keep eating it. And there's yeah. enough to make them still successful. And I think the transparency might have softened the blow. You yeah. know, because they have their stance, but they also have their reasons behind their stance. And you know, I, I, I'm not, not for anything that's unapologetically wrong. And I'm not saying they're wrong because I, I love Chick-fil-A and I, I actually align with a lot of what uh, Dan Cathy says. I was on a call with him a few weeks ago and I, I'm, you know, but um, I, what I found was that in that case, the transparency helped, you know. I think you're right. I think if they didn't respond or didn't say anything about it, they could have just dug themselves a deeper hole, but taking a stand and saying, look, this is who we are and, we don't need to apologize for it uh, yeah. probably made people who align with that thinking conservatively about social issues probably made them even more ardent fans of Chick-fil-A than they were before. Yeah. Just for being who you are. Yep. I mean, on, on a personal note, when I was younger, my dad was having a conversation with a guy who was wearing a Confederate hat and was very much so as, you know, grandson of Confederacy or whatever. And I asked my dad, how do y'all get along so well? Because they always was they would have coffee in the morning and stuff at a local mm -hmm. spot or whatever. And my dad said, "Well, you know, you don't have to agree with somebody all out to get along with them." Yeah, you know. And That's... they had interesting conversations every morning, and then they go about their way. And you know, that was a lesson to me of of tolerance. Of people have opinions. People were brought up a certain way. They came from a certain place, mm -hmm. and um, you can't fault them for who they are. And well, just look for the commonalities and connect there and keep it moving. I, I wish everybody in the universe could hear your dad's advice and heed it because that would make the world a hell of a lot better place. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, so Jason, before we go, tell me, um, let's get, get into your book. I want to make sure that the audience knows about your book. Um, sure. I'm looking forward to digging into it myself. Um, tell us about the book, what you, you can expect to learn from it. So it really goes back to the first thing we talked about, you know, the difference between influencer marketing and influence marketing. Winfluence is just kind of a catchy way of saying that very same thing, that let's talk about the action, the strategy, the thing you're trying to accomplish influencing rather than the channel you're going to use, the influencers, because we want to broaden that perspective and horizon. 
and um, actually influence an audience to take action, not worry about the individuals who are going to help us do that. Um, and it could be individuals online on social networks that help us do that. Or again, it could be that we need to align ourselves with a, a nonprofit organization, or we need to reach out to the parent, you know, parent teacher association president to impact, you know, local, um, you know, parents uh, in our community. So broadening your horizons so that you can influence rather than focusing on an influencer is really kind of the impetus behind the book and the theme of it all. But in the book, I kind of walk through, um, I, I do have, there's one chapter in the book that's, if you want to build an influencer marketing campaign, here's the step-by-step -step way you do it, right? Mm -hmm. And I've got all the steps in there, uh, the six steps to building an influencer marketing campaign. So it's a very practical chapter within this book uh, that'll take you through the tactical things. But really the book is more of how to think about influence as a strategy and how to think about it in terms of how does influence marketing align with advertising and how can I get people to just buy things using influence? How does it align with public relations, community relations? How do I influence people to think differently using influence marketing? Um, how do I drive ratings and reviews, the things that the search engines look at um, when they are trying to rank your products, when people are searching for products like them, how can I use influence marketing to spark and drive ratings and reviews that are going to impact my brand? And then sort of the big caveat on the end is I argue that influence marketing is in a lot of ways word of mouth marketing. How can I use influence and influencers to start that conversation about my brand in a way that it continues to grow and build value for my business in the marketplace. And so the whole book is really a strategic manual for using influence and influence marketing. There's the practical and tactical stuff in there, and it's chock full of case studies and examples um, of how you can uh, see how it's, it activates within certain brands, both B2C and B2B. Great. Well, I look forward to it, and I encourage others to check it out, too. So where can we find you, Jason? I'm really easy to find. I'm Jason Falls on every social network. Um, I am uh, at jasonfalls.com where you can find the two podcasts, the book and everything. There's a politician in North Carolina by the same name who does not like me at all because <laughs> he's on about page seven of a Google search. And I think I own the first five or six. So, hey, as, as a marketer, you should, right? <laughs> exactly. He, he reached out to me at one point and asked me how much I would uh, want for the, uh, the URL. And I was like, no chance, man. No chance. <laughs> Just charge him so, for marketing consulting. Yeah. He won't send me a yard sign either, jerk. <laughs> Well, Jason, man, thank you for joining the podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation with you. Um, look forward to your book and listen to your podcast as well. Lee, I appreciate the time, man. Thanks for having me. All right. And thanks to the listeners. If you're listening to the podcast and want to also see Jason and I, video the podcast and others will be available in the podcast section on contentmonster.com. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Business of Marketing podcast. A show brought to you by ContentMonster.com, the producer of B2B digital marketing content. Show notes can be found on ContentMonster.com as well as aleejudge.com. To continue the conversation, be sure to follow the podcast on your favorite podcast platform.